Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, life is challenging. <laughs> it's it's, and and one of the things that uh, one of the things that makes it challenging is sometimes we we know the right thing, or at least we know w- what we want uh, ideally in in our in our minds, in our hearts, and everything like that. And then yet, some so often we we find ourselves doing either the opposite or or doing something that's not necessarily consistent with what the original plan is. And and we get distracted, and, and sometimes our, our distractions uh, overwhelm us. And and so that's what I'd like to talk about today, which is kind of trying to understand the, the, the spiritual mechanics of these overwhelming distractions. Um, and just maybe some, some practical strategies to, to try to kind of... Um, not get ourselves uh, enmeshed in that way, and and um, and we're going to start off by by trying to give a a definition, um, a working definition for the word taiva. Taiva is a really interesting word in the Torah, and we're gonna we're gonna go back to the first use of taiva in the Torah. Remember, Rabbi Kain, um talks about how whenever you see, whenever you really want to understand a word. You have to go back to the first time it's used in the Torah, because that's sort of the headquarters of the meaning of that word. And so we're going to go back to the the first use of this word taiva. Taiva is a very sort of alarming word, actually. Um, like the simple English definition for it would be lust. But we're not just talking about lust in the sexual context here. We're talking about lust as any overwhelming desire that sends you headlong in a particular direction. So that could be for anything. That could be for anything. And, and certainly we're subject to all sorts of taivas during our lifetime. So one of the things that, that I got excited about and why I wanted to share this with you today is because I saw a story relating to taiva and how to, how to break taiva and how to define taiva. So all of these things are very helpful. And, and I'm, I'm just, just so you have a, a frame of reference for, for the talk that we're going to have. <clears throat> I once learned that as an Eitzah, that means like a holy piece of advice, that as an Eitzah Tova, a good, good piece of advice, that if you're having trouble managing a, a particular, say, mitzvah, right? Like there's something that you'd like to make progress in but it's hard for you to make progress in this thing. That the way to do it, actually, is to learn the halachas, the laws of that particular thing. Now, that sounds a little bit, when I first heard it anyway, that sounds counterintuitive. Because it's sort of like, if I'm having trouble with a particular mitzvah, that means like I sort of, there's part of me that really is kind of like doesn't want to keep it at all or is rebelling against the idea that there should be any sort of control of that area from the outside. So the less I know about it, the better. <laughs> it would be, would be my instinctual approach to that. The less I know about it, the better. And in fact, the last thing that I want to know is more about it because if I'm having trouble with doing my present understanding of it, how much more so would I have trouble doing a more elaborate understanding of it? It sounds like you're going to pile up more things that I can't do on top of what I already can't do. Okay, so, so now I'm going to tell you why it's actually such a good idea. That's, that's our instinctual reaction, right? But here's the thing. See, the mind is very tricky. You know, there's this, there's, there's a whole psychology to, to sort of managing one's spirituality. And you have to kind of be a really good psychologist with yourself and understand how your mind works. Because if you can, if you can have insight into that, then all sorts of gates and opportunities in life for progress open up to you. So, so basically, all human beings have a fear of the unknown. 
And if you, when you are butting up against, say, a commandment that's like, just seems too, too far, like a bridge too far, it's too much for me, right? What you're dealing with at that moment is fear of the unknown. And by learning the halachas, like the, the sort of the outline, the detailed law on, on the thing, what that does is it changes the unknown into the known. Now you actually know what it is. And you're able to get rid of all sorts of misconceptions and all sorts of like, like the boogeyman disappears. You're able to kind of turn on the lights in the room and actually see what it is. And now you can proceed in a rational way. Now you can go, okay, that's what it is and that's what it isn't. Okay, well, I can do this much in it. See, it takes this emotional thing and it turns into an intellectual thing. And now you can proceed in a, in a normal way. Do you, do you understand? So this is, this, is, this is very, very important. I'm telling you something very, very important here, even if it just sounds very basic. So let me give you another version of this, okay? I had a friend, and this friend was sort of like, he wanted to become more observant, but he just wasn't in that place in his life. There were just too many conflicts, too many struggles. And he had the schus, the great merit, of being able to have lunch in New York with Rab Noach Weinberg, um, the founder and the longtime head of uh, Eishat Torah in, in, in Jerusalem. And Rav Noach was, a, was really a great master in these things. And the advice that Rav Noach gave to my friend, who, you know, wasn't, you know, keeping Shabbos or anything like this at, at this point in his life, he went on to, by the way, was he said, be very careful to define your terms. Be very careful to define your terms. Meaning to say, see, I'll give you an example. I don't think he gave this example, but this is what he meant. See, like, for instance, kind of like one of my campaigns in, in life here um, is that everyone should be able to define the word success for themselves. Success is one of these great traps. This word is one of these great traps because it's so horribly vague. It's horribly vague. And you'll find people, you, you go up to anyone in the world, you know, especially in America, and you say, do you want to be a success? Of course I want to be a success. You know, and they'll go to the greatest lengths to make themselves a, a success. They'll risk their life to be a success. Then you ask them, how do you define success? I don't know. <laughs> you mean you're ready to throw yourself in front of a bus to attain success and you don't even, you can't even define it? This is, this is what we're talking about. Happiness. Again, one of these, everyone wants to be happy. But how do you define happiness? And then what happens when um, two, two things that make you happy sort of like collide? Right? Unless you define them, you can't prioritize them. And unless you prioritize them, you don't have a plan in life. And you're just kind of winging it and running into walls. You know, I was so, I was so proud of, of my son. This, uh, I guess it was last Shabbos, there was a whole debate at my table about keeping Shabbos and, you know, this, that, and how do you define electricity and, and all the rest and just questions like really directing itself at really the, the, the fundamental observance of Shabbos. And, you know, there were some very emphatic opinions being expressed, and I was concerned, like, how are my children reacting to this? You know, because it, maybe it's having a, a negative effect on them, hearing, you know, these, uh, these, these opinions voiced so, uh, with such virulence. So, so my son was silent during the entire thing, and then we went into another room, and he was, remained silent. And I asked him, I said, like, what do you think? And he said, I don't want to talk about it. He said, I'm going to say one thing, and that's it. He said, 
Everyone wants to be happy. He said, Shabbos makes you happy. That, that was it. In other words, there was so much prioritizing that was there. Right? He figured out that See, because what you see in, in, in America is like just this, you know, there's just this, the greatest example of this, how people can attain material success and then they're still miserable. Because it's not just about material comforts. Ultimately, the soul is going to have a vote. And you know, the body has one vote. And when all is said and done, the soul has two votes. <laughs> so... So it's important to be sensitive to the, 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 the call of the soul. Because it's going to ultimately dictate whether a person is happy in the end. And so if that's, if that's the key board member, you want to get, get the soul on your side. Okay. So again, what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what we're talking about right now is the greatness of defining terms the greatness of defining terms. So now, with that lengthy introduction, I want to return back to this word taiva, right? Which is this overwhelming desire, which often, almost always, sends us into the wrong direction. So how do we, how do we define it? Because the first and foremost thing is we have to define it. Because in definition, there's power. Right? So, so that's kind of the main point of, of this talk. And we'll talk about some things once we define it, how we can deal with it, but that's not really the subject matter. Really what we want to do is define it. Okay. So I told you we're going to trace it back. We're going to trace it back to the first appearance in the Torah. And, you know, like everything else, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And it goes back to the tree of knowledge. And understandably, right? And it says that uh, Chava looked at, that's Eve, looked at the fruit of the tree. And this is, what's so amazing here is this is before they even ate from the tree of knowledge. She looked at the, tree, the fruit of the tree and it says that it was Taivo hu le'enayim. Okay, if you want to see where that is, that's um, in Brachis, in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 6. That means it was a taiva for the eyes, which is interesting, which means that, you know, it's, I I looked at the, in the the English uh, uh, translation, and it says that, um, that it was uh, a delight. That, boy, that's too innocent a word. <laughs> a delight. No, it wasn't a delight. It was, it was this overwhelming, this overwhelming desire for it. And by the way, just so everybody knows, just so that they um, have a way of understanding these things, um, the test of whether to eat from the tree of knowledge was, was massive. Sometimes people just don't take it seriously enough. They think that, oh, it's just, you know, don't eat, and then we ate. Why did we have to eat? No, it was the most existential, massive, massive test you could imagine. It was giant. It was giant. It was giant. It was like literally, it was with, with cosmic consequences. Okay? Because basically... What was going on in what was going on with the test in general, we'll get back to the eyes in a second. What was going back, but th- this overlaps definitely with the word taiva. What was going on with this test was did we as human beings understand what our role in creation was or not? That's big. That's really big. Can you imagine you go to the party? It's a birthday party, right? You're invited to a birthday party. And you, and you tell everybody it's your birthday, that it's your party, but 
it's not your party and it's not even your birthday. <laughs> What's going on? It's like, you're taking over the party. There, there's a bit of insanity there, right? I mean, a person has to know who they are, right? Can you imagine you show up at, to, to a company and you, you're, you're hiring and firing people, but you don't even work there? <laughs> it's like, who are you? <laughs> so, so it was really, really unclear to us who we are. You know, there's a, one of the classic stories about the Katska Rebbe was that he was, had his talus over his shoulder and they were davening and they were almost finished with the davening and he hadn't started the davening yet. And, you know, they came up to him and, you know, because he was deep in meditation, like, they were like, well, what's going on? And he said, you know, I said moda'ani, which is, when I woke up this morning, which means these are the first words that we say every morning. Modani is translated as I, I, I gratefully thank you. And he says, ever since I've been wondering who am I and who are you? Right? This is very big. This is very big. So what the snake did was the snake confused us. The snake said, oh, you're also God. And it played into basically our Achilles heel because we ourselves didn't know that we weren't God. By the way, it said that human beings were so glorious. This is the Medrash right now. The Medrash teaches that human beings were so glorious that, that creation was bowing down to them was bowing down to the first man. And that, believe it or not, this is, in, according to the rabbis, the origin of sleep. That God created sleep because it was only when the first human being went to sleep that the creations around him saw, oh, he's not running the show. Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you something that I heard from Reb Shlomo, something very, very interesting. It's a, it's a classic question. Why did the snake come to Chava and not to Adam? Right? Because the snake is enticing Eve, not Adam. So the snake says to Chava, you can be God. You can also be God. And I listened to this, something amazing. A woman has the power to give birth which is very godlike. And so the woman was more vulnerable to this idea from the snake that you're also God because there is something so godlike about a woman that 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 a man doesn't have. And so she was more easily sort of swayed by that type of logic. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating idea. Um, anyway, we were basically a little bit clueless. We weren't able to define hitting that word again. We weren't absolutely able to define who we were and what our role in creation was. And so, and we even had an instinctual sense that we were God. And I'll tell you something which endlessly blows my mind that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yaakov, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, that deep down every single person thinks that they created themselves. We're sort of hardwired to think somehow, even though we know it's not a rational thought. Everybody knows you have parents. Everybody knows it's not true. And yet, at the same time, deep down, every single person thinks that they created themselves. So we're, we're sort of like imprinted with this sort of God complex. And a person has to arrive at their understanding, every single person independently has to arrive at this understanding of 
who they are, who we actually are, who I am, and who God is. And what our role in creation is. Okay, believe it or not, we're talking about taiva. This whole time we're talking about taiva. Just, just in case you thought we, we left the subject. So, so the snake speaks to... The, the snake speaks to Chava... And the snake puts its words inside of Chava. There's this kind of almost this intimacy of that connection. He puts his words inside of her, okay? And, and, and tells her, you know, you're also God. And now she looks at the fruit, and it says, this is again before she eats from the fruit, and it says the fruit was a taiva to her eyes. Like the idea to sort of like seal the deal that she's also God, basically. Like that becomes this overwhelming desire. Okay. Now I want to tell you a story. And I learned this story this past week and I was so happy. And I'll just tell you how it happened without going into all the details. I was learning with someone who has a hard drive and on this hard drive, you ready for this? There's 70,000 Hebrew books, 70,000 Torah books on this hard drive. And we put in, because we were talking over lunch, this phrase, Taiva Hule Enayim. And we thought, okay, let's plug this in, see where it gets us. And where does it end up? With a story about the Kutzka Rebbe. <laughs> so, those of you who have been listening to these talks know that um, I, I very much love the Hasidus of Kutsk. And um, so I'm going to tell you this story in the Sefer. It's in Siach Sarfei Kodesh. And, um, and at the end of this story, in bold black print, it's written, Taivas Hula Enayim. Right? That it was a, this taiva, this this overwhelming desire to the eyes, this fruit of, 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 of Eve. Okay, so, so it's a Hasidic story, but you have to understand this Hasidic story is, is really a commentary on this verse. Okay? How does the story go? And now this is going to lead us to a definition of this word, which is going to help us in our own lives, God willing, how to manage this when it happens to us, which happens multiple times a day, right? Okay, so, so there was a very big Rebbe in Poland. Um, his name, he was the Rebbe of Gostanin. Very, very big, very, very big. And the, 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 the Rebbe of Gostanin was, was very close with the Kutzka Rebbe. Okay, the Kutzka Rebbe part's going to come later. Let's start with the beginning. So, so... Excuse me. The Rebbe of Gustinin was was with a with with someone, and he's they're talking, and uh, the Rebbe pulls out a beautiful, beautiful silver snuff box. You know, like the, this this silver craftsmanship back in the day was was really on a very very high level. You know, they were masters. So this is in the eighteen hundreds. So he puts it on the table and he notices the person that he's talking with is like staring at the box. And he, the, the Rebbe says to him, you know, you should be very careful. You know, one look of the eyes can really, like, it can change everything. So, so the guy says, you know, I was just looking at it because, you know, I didn't, you know, I was just wondering why you have such a box. Like, whether it's fitting, like, you're like a spiritual guy. You have this incredibly elaborate, beautiful snuff box. Okay. So he tells him, he says, I'll tell you a story. So now this is the Gustamina Rebbe telling the story. He says, this is about the Kutzka Rebbe now, okay? And he says that someone visited the Kutzka Rebbe, an antique dealer. And the Kutzka Rebbe saw this antique dealer staring at one of his objects, and the Kutzka Rebbe said to him, I'll sell you this, but you have to give me all of your money for it. And the antique dealer said, no. 
And the Kutzker Rebbe said, why? And he said back, because when I buy antiques, I give a little bit of gold. I don't give all of my gold. And the Kutzker Rebbe says, you answered very well. He said, a moment ago, there was a decree of poverty hanging over you that would have lasted to the last day of your life. But because you said those words, you broke the decree. That's the end of the story. And then it says in the Sefer, Taiva hu le'enayim. Right? It's referencing it back. That story is somehow explaining, and I'll explain it a little bit further, somehow explaining Eve looking at the fruit and what the nature of Taiva is altogether. And we'll figure out how those words, no, I just give a little bit, I don't give all of my money, I just give a little bit, how that broke the decree. And that's going to, in those words, will be the practical advice for how we're to proceed with our lives and what to do when it happens to us. Okay? So here's the idea. Do you know what taiva is? Taiva is when you want something, whatever it is, you want something and you're putting the entirety of yourself into it. That's the definition. You want something and it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily even a rational thought. In fact, it's probably not a rational thought. But the fact that it's not a rational thought is actually even worse because it's also including all of your emotions. <laughs> In other words, it's, it's, it's including the entirety of your life force wants that thing in the moment. And you're willing to give everything for that thing. And even worse, you're not even thinking about defining what everything is. How many people, and we read about it in the newspapers, unfortunately, all of the time, they've got attained big positions, big positions of power and things like that. And they ran after something or someone or whatever it is. And then their lives fall apart. Do you think if they thought about it and it was explained to them exactly what was going to happen, that they would do such a thing? No one would do such a thing. But that's the nature of taiva. Taiva, the entirety of the person is invested in that want at that moment. Now we have a working definition. Okay, so now let's go back to the story, because the Katska Rebbe was very, very great. He says to the person, I'll sell you that thing, but you have to give me all of your money. And the guy said, no. Do, do, do you, see the, the, you see what just happened there? Do you understand what just happened there? He just said, no, I'm not putting all of everything I have into that. And then the Kutzkarebi says, why not? And he says back to him, because when I buy an antique, I give a little bit of gold. I don't give everything. Do you understand? Do you understand how that broke the decree? Because he didn't put all of himself into it. All of a sudden, he was able to distance himself so that he was only putting a little bit of himself into it. Okay, now we have a, an idea of the, the next time that we get overwhelmed, right? See, you know, there's something very brilliant. The, the, um, the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I've learned from, from, from various people. I haven't been in it myself, but I, I've learned bits of wisdom from, from the program. And, uh, oh, And one of the brilliant things that they say is that if someone is an addict, whatever it is, they have to consider themselves, even after they stop, let's say they haven't used in a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, they have to continue to consider themselves an addict. They never leave the category of not an addict. They're just, they're just in recovery their entire life. Because they understand that 
that if they if they give just a little bit, if they take one more drink, they're going to be back to their, their old selves. So, so what this definition tells us is that the next time a person has an overwhelming urge, a person has to say, do I really want to give everything for that thing? And now there are different strategies. And there's a tool that I think is very helpful. And I, you know, I, I can't say I've done this a lot of times, but I would love to be able to do this all the time. And, and, and I, it's called the Fast of the Rivet. The Rivet was, um, he was a Rishon and one of our greatest Torah commentators. Okay? Listen to what the Fast of the Rivet is. It's that when you eat food, right, you leave a bite. You leave a bite of, I, I don't know whether it's just one bite on the plate or a bite of each of the things. I, I, I don't know the, the specifics of it. But the idea is that you don't take the entirety of the thing. And by leaving a little bit behind, you haven't put your entire self into the thing. And this is, develops a muscle within a person not to put your whole self into everything. Do you hear? Very, very interesting, very interesting thing. See, these little things are very big things. Um, I once told you this a while back, but I'll tell you again, just because it's a, it's a little thing that's a very big thing. If a person, and many of us have this issue of procrastinating or not really getting the job done when we want to do it, we know that we have a job to do, and, but we, just, we have so much resistance that we just end up not doing it. Okay? So I'm telling you something which is one of the things, and I do do this, and this has really helped me a lot, is if I walk by a piece of paper on the floor, that I don't like paper on the floor, and it can be a small piece of paper on the floor. If I walk by something like that, and this is not, believe me, this is not coming from a place of neurosis, like, oh, he's a neat freak. It's, it's not that at all. If I feel as though I want that picked up off the floor, I pick it up off the floor immediately. Now, let me just tell you the benefits of doing something like that. If you see a dirty dish, say, and you know that you want it cleaned, clean it immediately. Let me just tell you what that does for you, because it can be a life-changing thing. I, I, it sounds strange that I'm, I'm, I'm putting so much weight on this, but I really am, because it sends a message to yourself that you can do something that you want to do right away. And you begin to develop muscles for doing things that need to be done right away. And that same skill, which comes from, instead of walking by a piece of paper on the ground, picking it up at the moment, that same skill is 100% transferable to, I have an assignment due, or I have a call I have to make, or I have an email I have to write. 100% transferable. So there's little, little things like this. Little things like, you know, like leaving, leaving a bite of food. Where you're not putting the entirety of yourself into it. Where you're able now to develop a certain strength that the next time you're faced with something, you say, do I really want to put everything into that? And then, and, then, and then this can become a very healing thing. Okay. So now, we can just end with, um, with the exception. <laughs> there is an exception. So, David Amelech in the Tehillim says that, uses the word taiva and says, I have taiva for God. When it comes to God, you can be all in. 
then you can be all in. And I heard something beautiful for, from uh, Rabbi Freeman yesterday. He said in the name of the, the Rishis Chachma, a great Torah commentator. And he talked about how there was someone who had a, a, a passion for the daughter of the king. A princess, but a woman. Because he had a passion for this woman. But, you know, we can't relate to it so much right now. But back in the day, like, the daughter of the king was really like, you're dreaming. I mean, I don't even know what I would compare it to today. I, you know, a supermodel or something like that, you know. You probably have a better chance with a supermodel than the daughter of a king, you know. So, so anyway... But because he was able to transform or control that passion for the daughter of the king, it became a passion for God. It was transformed into a passion for God. And you know, you see something, and I remember talking with someone, and I was surprised that he didn't get this, because this sounds obvious to me, but... For a lot of people, it's not so obvious. You know, you see it in the world. You see a lot of people who are like serious rock and rollers, and all of a sudden they become like ministers. <laughs> like, have you seen this? There's quite a, quite a number of examples of this. And then you go, like a lot of people think, ah, oh, that guy was, he's just nuts. <laughs> he was nuts when he was a rock and roller. Now he's become a minister. Now he's like, you know, it's just another double nuts, whatever. <laughs> Right, but it's, but it's not. It's not. It's not. What they've been able to do, certain people, they were able to take their fire, and they were able to transform their fire into a holy fire. In other words, there's no jumping from one extreme to another. It's a very It's all on the same spectrum. They were able to elevate and transform themselves in the highest beautiful way. So, so great blessings come to us. Great blessings come to us when we're able to exercise a degree of control. And now I want to go back to the beginning. What did we say? We said that the problem with Chava and Adam, right, was we didn't know who we are, what our role in creation is. It wasn't defined. It was confusing to us. Especially since creation was, was bowing down to Adam. So it, in other words, there, there seemed to be a, um, an affirmation of the incorrect. That, that Adam really was God. And you know, we all get it in our own lives. Right? Because all of us, we, we, we tell our dog, sit, and it sits. <laughs> So I must be God, right? I turn on a light switch and there's light. Right? I turn the car key and, and whoom. All of a sudden it, it, uh, it comes to life. In other words, creation itself is responding to us hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day, like creation did to Adam originally affirming our power as God. Because how could it be that I have a desire and all of a sudden it exists in the world? So it's going back to this tree. It's going back to this tree where Chava put the entirety of herself into this idea, I can be God too. She put the entirety of herself into it. Taiva hula enayim. And then it just, it just went down from there. Because there was a confusion, not just of control, but there was a confusion of identity. And we have to understand that these two things go together. 
we have to understand that the reason why I can't just throw my, the entirety of myself after every single desire, the reason why I can't do that is because ultimately I'm a creation and I'm not the creator. And so in controlling myself, what I'm doing simultaneously is asserting the fact that I'm a creation and not the creator. And when I clarify my identity, then all of a sudden the idea that I should live within a framework of divine law makes sense. Because if I'm not the lawgiver, then I'm a subject of the realm. And the subject of every realm has has different pathways. The responsibility to to fulfill the desire of the king. And then and then we all do it as best we can. But again, the first step in being able to make breakthroughs in all of these areas is to define these terms. Right? It says in Perke Avo something very interesting. That a person, <coughs> when they really are drawn to something very strongly, or drawn like to something that they aren't supposed to do, they're supposed to say, at that moment, um, what will I gain from this and what will I lose from this? And then if there's something that they're supposed to do that they don't want to do, they're supposed to ask themselves again, what will I gain from this, something very great, and what will I lose if I don't do it? So, so what's Again, getting into the psycho-spirituality of this, what's so brilliant about that is that it's, it's an attempt to break the emotional hold of the person at that moment by bringing them into a rational place where they can begin to create perspective. And once you have perspective, you remember, I'm a subject of the king. I'm not the king. And then all of a sudden, all sorts of gates and opportunities and blessings open up for us and the entire world. Okay, so I I promised to talk about this on a more practical level. And I want to talk about how really this affects um, just how we deal with each other and our happiness on a daily basis as well. Okay, so let's let's go a little bit deeper, a little bit further. Let's talk about really one of the great negative examples of, of, of this. And that would be Haman. Okay, Haman, of course, the villain of the Purim story who wanted to commit genocide on the Jews. He's the king of Amalek, okay, descended from the king of Amalek. And interestingly, um, uh, the Talmud trans- finds, asks the question in Gomorrah Hulin, where do you see the first use of the name Haman, right? So that's, that's, that's actually a very interesting question because the five books of the Torah happened much earlier than the Purim story when, when Haman exists. But, but the premise is, is that everything in the entire world is contained in the Torah. So someone like Haman certainly is in the Torah, even if he lived, you know, a thousand or more years later. So, so when it's talking about, you ready for this? The tree of knowledge which is what we've been discussing. Discussing It says, Hamin ha'etz. And they see an allusion, the word Hamin, Haman, is right there. They trace him back to the tree of knowledge. So, so we're still on the same subject here. So Haman had everything in his life. He had the highest government position. He had enormous, spectacular wealth. It was like a billionaire and then some. He had an enormous family. He had everything, right? But Mordechai wouldn't bow down to Haman. And Haman says, he sees Mordechai, it's such an outrage to him. Haman says these words. Because he won't bow down to me, 
It's like I have absolutely nothing. All of this, meaning everything that he has, means nothing to me. Now, I ask you to picture something. You've all seen this a million times. It's, um, it's the Las Vegas gambling scene where someone is sitting at their seat and they slide all of their chips into the middle of the table. Now, how many of us do this? And we don't even have any insight into it, but it happens all the time. See, every single person here and every single person, period, is tremendously accomplished. You, you, you all have amazing accomplishments. And, and, and I mean what I'm about to say very, very sincerely, including the fact that you got out of bed this morning. And, you know, sometimes I, I said that yesterday and, and, and people laughed in the room. And believe me, I mean it seriously, because there are many people who it's one of the hardest things that they, they have to do is actually get out of bed in the morning. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a tremendous thing. It's a tremendous thing, and we, 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 we can't take it for granted. So even that is a huge accomplishment. So every single person has a huge number of accomplishments. And yet, how many people put their entire self-esteem on the line? Like imagine that guy putting all the chips in the center of the gambling table. How many people put their entire self-esteem on the line on the line in casual interactions with people who they hardly even know? Right? Like you go up to the dry cleaner and the dry cleaner doesn't give you the proper honor or delays you or whatever it is and all of a sudden you you feel like nothing. <laughs> or you get so angry because somehow, again, not consciously, not rationally, in this casual interaction, you've taken your entire self-esteem and you've gone double or nothing. Then every single encounter with whoever it is, whatever Joe under the sun, every single encounter is double or nothing on your self-esteem. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever do that? This is an example of taking the entirety of yourself, you understand? And investing it in a way that doesn't make any sense. Right? I, I heard Rabbi Green say one time, sort of like a, an isotope of this thought, you know, which is, we really, you know, uh, the Jewish people, you, you have a mitzvah to love every Jew, right? He said, but love, some you can love from afar. <laughs> but there's tremendous wisdom in that. There's tremendous wisdom in that. Doesn't, it doesn't mean don't love them. You, you can love them. But again, like, things are done in a measured way, right? And it, this, this psychology of everything having to be all or nothing is, is, is often the work of the Yetzirah. See, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Any person who wants to, we say Torah Temet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. Right? So, so anyone who wants to pursue a more spiritual life or try to, you know, try to, you know, to the best of their ability, do God's will as they understand it. Right? That means that there's an aspect of you that is seeking truth, right? So, so here's something that the Yetzahara is, this is one of its greatest tricks, right? That means the negative inclination, right? The Yetzahara says, unless you're doing something 100%, you're not doing it at all, and why bother doing it? Because really you're a hypocrite. And then you go, I don't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> like, the whole reason why I'm trying to do this is not to be a hypocrite. I said, well, you know, you, 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 you're only putting on, you're not putting on tefillin every day. Why even bother putting it on once? You're a hypocrite. Or you're not keeping Shabbos entirely. So why stay home Friday night? Right? Or you're, you're using the computer, but you don't want to use the lights. Or you're, you're waiting, you, you, you're not waiting three hours or six hours between milk and meat, so why, why wait at all? 
So now, can you imagine this example? You, there's a poor person lying on the sidewalk. He's starving. And you walk by him and you go, you know something? I, my soul goes out for this guy. This guy is so hungry. When's the last time he had a steak? I would love to buy him a steak. That would be a beautiful thing. And then you've got $5 in your pocket. And you say, you know, I can't buy him a steak for $5. And you walk up. (laughs) Meanwhile, you know what he can get with $5? You could save his life. So that's the same thing with the soul. The soul says, okay, maybe you're not doing the entire thing, but give me something. But the Yetzirah is so tricky. The Yetzirah goes, no, if you're not going to do the entire thing, not going to do the entire thing, who are you joking? You're trying to pursue truth, but this isn't truth. You're being a hypocrite. It's better, it's a bigger mitzvah not to do it. Do you, that's the snake. It's mamish the snake. It just got you to do nothing in the name of truth. How did it do that? But again, this is another idea of every not falling into this black and white, all or nothing, all of me or none of me kind of thing. To be able to have the wisdom to modulate and to take steps. Right? Because... Everything is a journey. All of life is a journey. And, you know, really we'll, we'll close with this for real. One of the greatest teachings I heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said that the, the point is not which level you're holding on, right? Because let's say I'm holding a hand up high right now. Let's say you're holding on this level, which is, say, a high level, and then got a hand below. Let's say you're holding on this level, which is a low level, Right? The question is not what level you're holding on. It's which direction are you going in and at what speed. (laughs) Because if I'm holding at this high level and I'm going down fast, who's that helping? But if I'm holding at this quote-unquote low level, but I'm going up, then that's fantastic. So at every level that we're at, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. You know, because... The soul is dynamic. It can move and pivot at any moment in any direction. And that's part of the glory of life, why life is so exciting. Because really, any gate can open up at any moment. Right? We just have the wisdom, we just need the wisdom to know how to direct ourselves and how to guard ourselves.